I would encourage you to open your Bibles to the letter to the Romans, chapter 9. As you're turning to that passage, give a few words about the context of our reading tonight. My, uh, My wife has a friendship message on a plaque in our home from one of her best friends ever, one whom we met in the mountains of western North Carolina decades ago. The plaque that this dear friend gave Nancy says this, a true friendship isn't about being inseparable, it's about being separated and nothing changes. And Margaret has been just that kind of friend to her and to me through the years. Now, as we said last week, there's a similar sentiment on a much grander scale uh, that we have regarding the love of God for his people at the end of the last chapter in Romans uh, that we studied, chapter 8. It's a, it's a soaring passage that Pastor Ben preached on last Sunday. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now truly, that is a Mount Everest of all biblical mountaintops. It is God's in a sense, his great friendship plaque to his people. Nothing in all the creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And yet the very next verses, the verses that open chapter 9, which we're going to read in just a moment, take us from that high peak of Paul's passion for the love of God at the end of chapter 8 to the lowest state of burden that the apostle ever expresses in the epistles, like going from the top of the mountain down to the bottom of the sea, just like that. It's such a dramatic change from chapters 8 to 9 that some people have actually said that he's inserting a different document into the Roman epistle here. Now, I think, I think that's wrong, as I'll try to explain in just a moment. But first, let's read the passage, and I want you to give your full and undivided attention now to the reading of God's Word in Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And we're only going to read through verse 5. Hear the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this awesome passage 
And we ask, Father, that we would sense the the passion of your servant in this text. But more than that, that we would sense the magnitude of your gifts to your people, both in the old covenant and now in the new. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the giant mood swing from the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 9 is not because the Apostle Paul was spiritually bipolar, nor has he inserted a manuscript into the original epistle. No, I think it is precisely because he has just meditated on the transcendent glory of God's all-conquering love in Christ, that he is immediately confronted in his own mind with the seeming failure of that same love in the rejection by the Jewish people of their Messiah, their own Messiah, Jesus Christ. I mean, this this is a problem. It's a big problem. It's an apparent, an apparent contradiction in salvation history that Paul, as a Jew himself, could never forget. Here is how one Bible scholar put it. The problem is the persistent unbelief of God's chosen people. They have largely rejected the very Christ from whom was born, who was born from their race and for their redemption. Is not God's plan for the redemption of all creation through Christ thwarted by their rejection of that plan? How can God's plan for the redemption of all creation be complete without them? Can Paul's massive declaration of the surety of God's grace in chapter 8 be anything other than whistling in the dark or vapid optimism in the face of this persistent rejection of that same grace. Indeed, how much comfort is there in being told that nothing can separate us from God's love when there is apparently something quite capable of separating the chosen people themselves from God's love? Now, you won't get all the answers to these questions from our five verses tonight. But those are the issues that Paul is going to be addressing uh, throughout this chapter as a whole. And, and, and it is important. I mean, it's very important. Because it, if you like your religion to have some internal consistency, to have some logic, and by the way, you should want that. God is a God of order, not disorder. He pleads with his people to sit down and reason with him. He's a God of light, not dark confusion. Then this issue that the apostle is raising really appears to be a kind of raging contradiction to that type of well-ordered religion. After all, remember what Paul said back in his opening chapter 1, the great thesis statement for this whole epistle. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek, to the Jew first. 
What would Paul say about the overwhelming first century rejection of Jesus by the majority of the Jewish people? Was the power of God too feeble after all in their case? Well, Paul begins his answer with an oath. Now, rhetorically, a personal oath is a, is a tow missile. It's a, it's a bazooka. It's big, the big guns. Because as a Jew and as a Christian, Paul knew that oaths or vows were the most serious thing your mouth ever does. Paul knew that no less than Solomon had declared that it is better to not vow at all than to vow and not pay the vow. Ecclesiastes 5.5 And Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that every word a person utters in an oath or vow, he'll be or she'll be held accountable for by God. And here Paul uses a Jewish literary form of a double affirmation, a positive affirmation followed immediately by a negative saying the same thing to underline the importance of it. So look with me at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Not only is this a double affirmation, but it's also using two of the three names of the Holy Trinity, of Christ and the Holy Spirit, to put a supreme emphasis on what he's about to say. I mean, can you imagine being in a court and calling Jesus Christ to stand in the witness box for you, to bear witness to you and your character? That's really what the apostle's doing here. And what is he saying in such a solemn and serious way? Well, Paul is declaring that he, the great apostle to the Gentiles, has a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Think about that incredible language, brothers and sisters. Could anything be heavier than this? Paul says he has a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in his heart. He's clearly gone from the mountaintop to the bottom of the sea here. An unceasing anguish. You know, our beloved old hymn that we often sing in the evening service speaks of a love that will not let me go. Well, my friends, this is the sorrow that would not let the apostle go. He thought of it every day. The life of faith, you understand, is not one uninterrupted, a blissful mountaintop experience. In fact, while it has unique joys and a transcendent aspect to joy that makes it durable like no other joy, the life of faith also opens you up to sorrows, sorrows which, frankly, you would not feel if you did not have faith. Paul would not be grieving over his people's rejection of Jesus in this way if he himself had not been wonderfully arrested by the voice and love of Christ on the road to Damascus. And yet note that despite the fact that it causes him all this pain, Paul does not have any note of bitterness here toward the Jews. Indeed, as we'll see in a moment, He calls them, he still calls them, 
my brothers. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce said it so well. He said, the truly remarkable thing is not that the Jews hated Paul. That was natural, given what each believed and was trying to accomplish. The remarkable thing was Paul's overwhelming love for those who were his enemies. He tells them in one place, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one, adding that he was in constant danger from my own countrymen. Second Corinthians 11. Yet nowhere, Boyce is still writing, nowhere in his writings or anywhere else is there ever found or is ever imputed to him the shadow of personal offense, matching retaliation, or lingering bitterness against the Jews for all this abuse. Not once, nowhere. On the contrary, Paul's spirit was the spirit of his master who wept over the city of Jerusalem even though he knew it was about to to crucify him uh, by the work of the nation's leaders. Brothers and sisters, can we engage in taking every thought captive for Christ in the sewer system of the modern post-Christian, post-modern secular culture we now live in. And yet, and yet still, all the while, maintain the same spirit of love for our neighbors. Sometimes, indeed very often, we must oppose their ideas and their culture of self-promotion and self-realization and their contempt for divinely revealed truth. But as we oppose those ideas, in no uncertain terms, will they know that we love them? Personally, I don't think I'm very good at this. But we can look to the apostle for inspiration and example. But then Paul takes a step that I doubt even the best of us would ever take under any circumstance. Now remember, he's just made a vow to God about this statement. Having just spoken of his anguish for the Jews, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, if it would enable my fellow Jews to be saved, I'd be willing to be damned. The language here of of being accursed and cut off harkens back to the Old Testament penalties for covenant breaking and involves being cut off from the redemptive community, banished, banned, cast out, canceled, excommunicated, and utterly damned. It sounds something like what Moses said to the Lord at the time of the golden calf. Moses said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, speaking to the Lord, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You see, the instinct to sacrifice oneself To atone for others is surely a noble one. And it's rooted in, I think, the restoration of the divine image. We might even say it this way, 
the divine impulse to redeem others that was in these great servants of the Lord, Moses and the apostle. But of course, in the end, only God himself can atone for our sins through his appointed priest and sacrifice, the God-man, Jesus. This idea of our being willing to, to bear the curse for others, I think is something none of us are really eager to claim for the enemies of the gospel today. But I wonder, what about within our own families? Would we sacrifice everything for their redemption? Charles Spurgeon told the story of a girl who was failing in her health and asked the uh, pastor to come over and talk to her about her coming funeral. What she really wanted to talk about, however, was her father, who was not a believer and who had never attended church, not once, despite, in many cases, her pleadings with him. She said, when Spurgeon came to see her, Pastor, you will bury me, won't you? My father will have to come to the funeral and hear you speak, and you will speak the gospel. Please speak it clearly. I have prayed for him For a long time, I know God will save him. According to Spurgeon, the father came to the funeral and indeed was converted. The girl's death, of course, could not atone for her dad, but it could attract him to the one who does give himself effectively for salvation. Of course, what Paul's talking about here is more than physically dying for another person, for the Jews. He was talking about becoming anathema, cursed by God, cut off from God in eternity. And many have said, or at least some commentators have said, that they think this is kind of holy hyperbole. That Paul couldn't have really meant this literally. But you know, as I've thought about it this week, I think sometimes perhaps we should not overanalyze such things. Paul is speaking with holy emotion here. That godly zeal that is equal parts love of God and love of people. And I think the larger point is clear in any case. This apostle of Jesus was deeply and continually burdened for the salvation of the Jewish people. God's chosen people in the old covenant. His kindred, he said, according to the flesh. Now that phrase, according to the flesh, is is interesting. I, I, I would think Paul surely would have considered the Gentile believers in Jesus to whom most of his ministry was dedicated to be kindred in the spirit to him. And so what he really wants here is for his blood kin to become his spiritual kin as well. As I say to my two sisters all the time, it is wonderful, Jenny and Rebecca, it is wonderful to be your blood brother, but to be your brother in Christ is the highest privilege and joy. But there is more than blood binding Paul's heart to the Jewish people. You know, Judaism is, is never first and foremost about blood kinship. For the same God Paul worships in Jesus Christ had showered them, the Jews, 
with astounding spiritual privileges for centuries. We see that list of spiritual privileges here in verses 4 and 5. I mean, the Israelites were always different, not only in their own minds, but in the minds of those around them. In the late 1800s, a a great statesman named Benjamin Disraeli, a conservative politician, became the first Jewish prime minister of England. Of course, there was immediate opposition to his to his position and his person, opposition, some of it uh, really reflective of that opposition that there has always been to Jews. An Irish Roman Catholic leader named Daniel O'Connell, in the process of making a verbal attack against Disraeli on the floor of Parliament, referred to his Jewish ancestry. The young prime minister rose and said, to the Irishman, yes, sir, I am a Jew, and I remind my illustrious opponent that when the ancestors of that right honorable gentleman were but brute savages eating nuts in a German forest, my ancestors were serving as priests in the temple of Solomon and were giving law and religion to the world. And so they were. And so they were. Paul writes in verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. There is no place and no warrant in the word of God for anti-Semitism. Just the opposite is the case. Let's look at Each one of those things listed briefly. First, to them belong the adoption. Many followers of Jesus may be surprised to find out that the Old Testament saints were adopted by God too. But God's adopting love has always been connected to his act of election, his choosing a people for himself. Do you remember from our recent Sunday morning sermon when God told Moses to say to the Pharaoh, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You see, the the judgment against Egypt's firstborn sons was rooted in Israel's adoption by God as the sons of God. If Pharaoh was going to mess with his sons, he would mess with his sons. The later in salvation history, the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Yes, to the Israelites belong the adoption. What is new in the new covenant is, first of all, that Gentiles are being adopted into that same family through Jesus without having to become Jewish. And, secondly, I think this is so important, with the fuller outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, Christians also have what Paul called in the last chapter the spirit of adoption by which they cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, 
Christians feel our adoption in Christ down in our bones. But it is still true to say to the Israelites belong adoption. And to the Israelites belong the glory. The glorious presence of the Lord in his Shekinah glory cloud. That brilliant, effulgent, radiant cloud that indicated an appearance of the presence of the Almighty. It was the pillar of cloud in the wilderness. The pillar of fire that we've been hearing about. They saw the Shekinah glory at the top of Mount Sinai. And it also appeared over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Now the Canaanite nations and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Romans, they all had their faux glory in their capitals and their empires, just as nations do today. But the real glory, the Shekinah, was only with Israel. So again, they had the adoption, and to them belonged the glory, and to them belonged the covenants. 253 times in the Old Testament, the word covenants or a similar word is used. As I said to the inquirer's class last week, God never dealt, and I think it's an absolute statement, God never dealt with Israel casually, carelessly, or on the fly. At every point of their existence, they were bound to God with solemn and sweet covenants of His love that He Himself initiated for them. And then to them, to the Jews, also belonged the giving of the law, the house rules for the marriage of Israel and Yahweh. The righteous way they were to live out the implications of their gracious election and adoption by the Lord. You know, the law, understand this, the law was not some set of ethics that a smart Jewish priest had thought up on a whiteboard and and, and sort of baptized with holy water and given to the people. No, the law came from God on high mediated by angels and written by the finger of the Almighty upon stone tablets. It was to be considered an almost indescribable gift. And the psalmist could later write, O Lord, how I love your law. Then also, Paul writes, to them belonged the worship. Not through human sacrifices as the Canaanites and so many others did. No human bloodletting, but animal sacrifices, mercifully, with a promise of a perfect mediator who would, who would come. God called his people to come close to him and worship him in the beauty of holiness. The glorious and joyful annual festivals of Israel's life held in Jerusalem were especially seen as immense privileges for God's people to attend. You know, we often sing the Psalms of Ascent that were songs of joy to be sung as the people approached the city. Jesus certainly saw those festivals in that way. He attended them, from what we can tell from the evidence of the New Testament, all his life. And then the promises. The Jews had the redemptive promises of God. All the covenants 
had promises attached to them. Judaism is a religion of promises, with the greatest of them being the promise of the Messiah. And all the Lord's promises, we would confess, have found their yes and amen in Him, in the Messiah. But you know, it it wasn't just worship and great theology that God gave His privileged people. To them was given the patriarchs, verse 5. And what other nation, what other nation could point to such towering figures as Abraham and Moses and Elijah and David? God's grace to Israel became enfleshed in these great servants. And speaking of being enfleshed, then comes the crowning gift. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen. Christ, God over all. He is the crowning gift by His very nature as being God over all. You know, in a way, the the series of gifts God gave Israel through time was like that train of gifts that Jacob, uh, before he went, you know, had his crisis at the Jabbok River. Uh, He had set up a train heading towards Esau, his estranged brother. And Jacob sent these flocks of animals, all kinds of of animals and herds, and, and then servants with them and family members. Finally then, Jacob had planned to be on the end of the train so that as he approached, his gifts would soften the heart of his brother. Well, God sent all these blessings to Israel ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way for him. From the very beginning, Christ was the point of it all. Christ Jesus was the point of it all. He was not just the promise of friendship, not just the written plaque or covenant of friendship. He was the Friend himself. Paul will deal with the conundrum of the Jews' rejection of Jesus later in this letter. But for this moment, as we conclude this message, I want you to understand tonight the nature of this gospel. We, and you must believe this, we, like the Jews, stand under an avalanche of divine gifts. Every one of these great gifts, listen, every one of these great gifts that Paul lists here, that were given to the Hebrews, God gives to us in fuller and better form and measure. Remember what the letter to the Hebrews said? We have a better covenant enacted on better promises. And we have. The Spirit of Christ in us. The hope of glory. We have the friend himself. Truly, I hope you hear this. We have it all. We have it all. And so let us repent tonight of any kind of faith in which God is not our true and abiding and ever-giving friend. For standing under this avalanche 
of His spiritual gifts, knowing our true friend and and waiting upon His glorious return. I mean, that is the only gift that hasn't been given, is His return. In that context, we can truly sing, I found a friend, oh, such a friend, so kind and true and tender, so wise a counselor and guide, so mighty a defender. From him who loves me now so well, what power my soul can sever? Shall life or death or earth or hell? No, I am his forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, indeed, what love you have lavished upon us that we we should be called the children of God. And what good gifts you have given your children. All that we need for for life, for faith, for holiness is in these gifts. And in the great gift of Jesus himself. May we at this table of his blessing and love come to hold him more tightly in our hearts. For it's in his name that we pray for this. Amen.